Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Today's December 4th. There's still a pandemic and we are still live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN Ideastream. We're grateful for their partnership as always. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police, many states seized on the moment of national reflection to propose actions and policy changes intended to reduce racial disparities across a range of public institutions, including city and state governments and school districts. In Ohio, it also included the State Board of Education. In July, the board passed a resolution to, quote, condemn racism and advance equity and opportunity for black students, indigenous students, and students of color. The resolution acknowledges that profound racial disparities exist between students of color and their white peers in all parts of the Ohio education system, and it offers as well some steps to address them, concrete steps to address them. Reaction was mixed, as it can be with these strong progressive reform efforts, and today we'll talk with three leaders involved in the design of the resolution and hear their thoughts on how it will help chart a path towards equity for all Ohio students. Joining us today are Ohio Superintendent for Public Instruction, Paolo Di Maria, Laura Kohler, President and Member at Large for the Ohio State Board of Education, and from the Richmond Heights Local Schools, Superintendent Dr. Renee Willis. It is wonderful to have all of you here. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you. It's great, great to be with you. Good to have you with us. If you have questions for any of our panelists, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, you can tweet your question at the City Club. We'll work it into the program. And before we get started, I want to recognize and thank City Club member and State Board of Education member Merrill Johnson. Our forum today is really a result of her efforts on many different levels, and we're grateful for her engagement. So, um, Laura Kohler, I would like to start with you, if you could help us understand a little bit the process uh, by which this, um, this sort of came to pass uh, by a 12 to 5 vote. Absolutely. And, uh, Dan, you set, us, uh, set me up very well here because uh, the process really did begin with the tragedy that we all witnessed with George Floyd. Um, I, as a as a board member, I've been watching for a number of years now since I've been on the board, the persistent uh, gap in achievement scores between uh, students of color and um, black students in particular uh, compared to their white peers. And that was something that had been on my radar, and I wasn't sure what to do about it or how how to address it. Um, and the other part of the background was that in um, June of 2018, the board adopted a new strategic plan, and one of the four pillars of that plan is equity. Uh, and so uh, those factors came together for me, and then it was a sort of a very deep 
visceral response to what happened with George Floyd that I'm sure that many people can identify with. And I felt compelled to do something on behalf of the board. I recognize that we can't solve all the problems, but um, certainly we we are in a position uh, to impact one of the key factors that has gone into um, this disparity in terms of uh, opportunity and outcomes, and that is through education. And so I floated um, a proposed um, resolution with board members um, at a an early meeting. Um, I believe that was in June. And um, it wasn't terribly specific. It didn't, um, it wasn't a strong resolution in that it didn't call for any kind of specific action. But I did invite anyone else who was uh, interested to uh, give me a call. And um, I wanted to work collaboratively to strengthen what I knew was really not a very strong um Resolution. So at that point, three board members stepped up. One of them was Merle Johnson, um, and then uh, Stephanie Dodd and Linda Haycock uh, all contacted me, and we ended up working together through at least 10 drafts uh, of uh, the resolution um, and, and bounced our ideas off of uh, Superintendent DeMaria as well. But we finally decided uh, on um, a, a, a product that we felt very good about bringing to the full board. Um, it was not um, an easy adoption process. Uh, the discussion was extremely lengthy. Uh, it, it got a little testy at times, and people objected to certain phrases that we had used in the resolution. Um, but as you mentioned, the majority of the board did uh, approve the resolution, and um, I'm very pleased to say that we are already, already making great progress in terms of um, following the commitments that we are we have made through that resolution. Laura Kohler is the president of the Ohio State Board of Education. And Laura, I'd like to ask you to describe just a little bit more about the contentious nature of the discussion prior to the adoption of the resolution. This is a the wording of this resolution, and I urge people to 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 read it for themselves. Um, and you can find a link to it at our website at cityclub.org. But the the wording it pulls no punches. I mean, there is yes. a very direct references to white supremacist culture and um, and things of that sort. Um, is it safe to assume that that was the source of some of the the objections by some members of the board? Um, yes, that's exactly right. Um, the, the we did not have the word culture as a part of our original resolution. We talked about white supremacy, which was. Um, unpalatable to certain members of the board. And so we, we made that compromise. We had references also to systemic racism and um, the term implicit bias bothered other board members as well. It's interesting, uh, Paolo Di Maria, turning to you as uh, superintendent of public instruction, you um, serve the entire state. Um, 
And uh, it's interesting that from the perspective of many, these are the resolution makes some almost obvious and self-evident statements that are reflective of the history of our nation, which was a, a nation born out of slavery, a nation born out of oppression, a, a nation born out of stolen lands. Um, and, uh, and still, there are a number of people who you serve in the state of Ohio who don't recognize those historical facts. Yes. And, you know, uh, it's not just the state of Ohio. I, th I think you see it across the entirety of the uh, um, United States landscape. But but I also am a, a hopeful person because I think I look at my own journey um, and I think, you know, that it wasn't that long ago when I myself, uh, you know, I attended a, uh, an event sponsored by Columbus State Community College. Um, uh, having courageous conversations about different areas of society and really had my eyes opened. Uh, and, and, and it drove me down a path of educating myself more um, on everything from both, you know, the, na the notions of implicit bias and white privilege and, and my realization of the fact that, you know, I am a beneficiary of, of that privilege. Um, to also then beginning to dig deeper into history and 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 beginning to infuse in my work uh, and in the work of the department uh, these kinds of ideas. That's why when Laura talks about uh, the strategic plan, you know there are many places where that through line of equity really is pronounced. Everything from the title where we talk about each child, our future. That's the name of the plan, and it, and it really is meant to reflect this commitment that every child has value, and we must not rest until we address the individual needs of each child. And then we have a variety of other places and in fact call out both the idea that equity is the, is the greatest challenge that the education system faces, as well as this notion that really understanding the history of racism and oppression is an important feature that has to be called out. And I, I really look to a number of people that helped shape my own thinking. Everyone, Merle Johnson uh, uh, among them, Marsha Maccabee was, has been a great uh, help to me, Frank Whitfield, uh, and, and many others you know, across the state. Uh, who've, who helped me, again, build my knowledge base around history and understand more deeply my own, my own privilege, including uh, many members of my staff, people like Elizabeth Bridges, Tarek White, and, and many others. I should mention that uh, Frank Whitfield is mayor of Elyria, former, form, used to run the Urban League in Lorain County, and Marsha right. Bonkaby runs the Urban League of Greater yes. Cleveland. They're great friends of the City Club of Cleveland. And uh, Paolo Di Maria, in this state board of education is the same board of education that adopted the strategic plan, which really highlights equity. Why was this resolution, which would seem to grow out of uh, of the strategic plan and be an appropriate response to the summer's events, why do you think it was so difficult? Often boards of education, are the, the, the votes are formalities, they're consensus operations, consensus votes. This one was not. Right. Uh, so I'll start by saying that uh, the board membership does change from time to time. And so there were different people than originally approved uh, the plan. And we're actually looking to this coming January. We'll we'll have several. I think it's uh, at least five new board members joining us. So there's there's a little bit of of, uh, you know, constant kind of uh, reeducation and 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 reflect respecting different points of view and different voices. I think that's what makes the state what makes the state board really powerful is it does bring different opinions to the table. So I think like any initiative, um, you know, I, I always respect that people uh, have the right to put their points of view on the table. 
um, uh, engage in the in the discussion and deliberation, and then ultimately uh, uh, emerge with you know on the one hand um, you know consensus among a majority of board members, uh, and, you know, and some who who continue to be in a place where uh, they may disagree, and um, you know that that happens routinely on, among you know, in the General Assembly and Congress and, and elsewhere. Dr. Renee Willis, I want to turn to you now as superintendent of the Richmond Heights Local Schools. What does this kind of resolution mean? Uh, oftentimes these can just be words that don't result in action, but my sense is that this means more. So you're, you're exactly right, Dan. Um, when it comes to resolutions, I know I always go straight to the, the end where it says, be it resolved because there are a lot of whereases, and the whereases are so spot on, but be it resolved that our state board not only is strongly recommending that every local board of education take these actions, there also is a point in the resolution that speaks to they are directing the, the state board of education to do certain things around training, around cultural biases, and that's important. Um, the other part that hits the ground, particularly with districts um, like mine and others where we service a lot of um, students of color, is the notion that unbiased testing is something that our State Board of Education is advocating, um, culturally responsive curriculum, uh, black male targeted initiatives as the black male, when you think about all the students of color and the various subgroups, they're the ones that most likely will never have a teacher of their same sex or culture. Um, it's important that as we on the ground address these issues that we have to be mindful of the accountability factor that weighs in. Because while all districts have pretty much the same accountability metrics, we come to the, to the, to the race line, if you will, in a very different position. So that's why the term equity is so important because it's not necessarily equality, that everyone gets the exact same support, but when you have districts that are dealing with a lot of um, uh, non-academic barriers, if you will, there has to be a sense of equity doled out to these districts. And it, it, it makes me think about even now as we're in this COVID-19 era, just how COVID-19 is also heightening the awareness around other inequities um, in, in the health field, but it's gonna have a great impact on our achievement. You know, many districts that are in the state that are in full remote learning are districts with a lot of students of color. And it deals with the fact that there are so many inequities even in the healthcare because their caregivers at home have so many underlying conditions that parents would rather just keep their kids home than try to uh, educate them and possibly expose caregivers to this um, disease. So the accountability, while we have the cookie cutter model, we have the same metrics, it's amazing that during the pandemic, every district has to operate as they see best. So these are the types of things that happen with um, equity issues. And I would offer that this resolution could spark some great ideas around addressing these things. Um, the whole black male teacher shortage is something that could be a great initiative. And I would be remiss if I didn't say there's a phenomenal initiative happening here in Northeast Ohio, particularly through our um, NAPSI affiliate which is the National Alliance of Black School Educators, our Metro CAPSI group has a great initiative to recruit, to train black males to go into education. Um, culturally responsive curriculum, we're working with Dr. Elise Futura out of the University of Wisconsin, particularly around inclusion and equity. So these are programs that can be drawn to scale on a larger 
um, platform within our state, and it does have the backing of this resolution to make it happen. Dr. Renee Willis is the superintendent of the Richmond Heights Local Schools. And if you're just joining us, you were the City Club Friday Forum. Great to have you with us. We're talking today about a resolution that was passed actually back in July, but was uh, didn't get a, a ton of recognition at the time. It's a resolution by the Ohio State Board of Education. Uh, a resolution, I'm reading it now, to condemn racism and to advance equity and opportunity for black students, indigenous students, and students of color. Um, and to summarize briefly um, what is resolved, as you said earlier, um, Dr. Willis, that you, you, you skip the whereas is. You're like, yeah, I got that. Let's, let's see where the meat is, what's going to happen. That in terms of what's resolved, there, you know, there's a commitment to reflection at the State Board, and at the state, uh, at the state board of Education level, a commitment also to encourage every school district leadership, administration, and board, and local board to do a similar set of reflection provide resources for training, and that's significant, resources for training at all levels from the State Board of Education on down to the local levels, and as well with employees and contractors uh, with the board, with the Ohio Department of Education, which expands the, the universe of impact quite a great deal. Culturally responsive curriculum is, um, is recommended. Testing, that, te- that all testing is free of racial bias. And that all of this, again, works all, all its way down to the districts. If you have questions about any of this, please uh, get in touch. You can text your question to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. Dr. Willis, I want to stick with you for a second about culturally responsive curriculum. Um, what kind of changes, you know, on the ground, tactically, like what would change in terms of what your teachers, the curriculum that your teachers are delivering on a day-to-day basis? Great, great question, Dan. Um, So culturally responsive curriculum, and, you know, I was a teacher many years, and I always wondered why textbooks, and, and I've learned why, but why textbooks sort of put people of color in a separate place, as if February is the only month that we can teach about people of color, African Americans in particular. And I, as a principal, began professional development sessions around how to take our adopted textbook, but also supplement it with curriculum from other sources and meld the two so that our students don't learn about, say, our history from the mainstream textbook and then have to supplement or learn about the the people of color that were so instrumental during that same period during the month of February. And a perfect example, as a sixth grader, our students had to learn about, you know, Abraham Lincoln and what all happened with Abraham Lincoln, but then they had to wait until February to learn about Frederick Douglass. And never did anyone think that while we're learning about Abraham Lincoln, let's also teach that Frederick Douglass was a very important um, thought partner with President Abraham Lincoln at the time but yet he has to be relegated to a separate month. So that's just a minute example of culturally responsive curriculum. And it could be said for indigenous people, it could be said for any other culture, let's teach in totality. But of course the textbook is what it is. And you know, there's old saying, he who wins the war writes the book. So that's what we have, but we've got to do professional development to help people understand how to integrate the culture at all levels into curriculum. Paolo Di Maria is superintendent of public instruction for Ohio. Uh, what ki- other kinds of changes would you hope to see at the district level in terms of curriculum? 
Well, so uh, I appreciate Dr. Willis's example because I think it's a beautiful illustration that sometimes we become a little overly reliant on textbooks. And I, th I think even through this pandemic, we've seen increasingly teachers and their departments are really piecing together uh, curricula that really speak more to the needs of their students and their local community and their, you know, and, and their desires for what students are educated around. So, so and, and that's actually a trend that's been happening uh, for, for many years as people want to, and especially teachers, want to customize the activities that are happening, always being attentive to aligning them with state standards, uh, but being rec recognizing the cultural realities that exist uh, in their in their classroom. So, so I think um, I think the other thing that we're seeing is creating more opportunities for teachers to share. Uh, that also happened during the pandemic when we had the school closure period. I saw so many teachers, you know, hopping on, creating, you know, Twitter chats, getting on uh, Zoom calls, really uh, bearing their souls about the challenges they were facing, identifying new resources, trying new things. And I think that has to continue. Our job can be to help facilitate. Curriculum choices are really the purview of local school districts so we will we will you know never really be in a position of prescribing a particular curriculum uh, but we can continue to uh, play the role of connector convener broker uh, disseminator uh, because as superintendent willis uh, states there are a lot of amazing resources coming out of so many whether it's the smithsonian institution or the national underground uh, railroad museum uh, places that are putting forth those materials that really address that cultural competency issue Paolo Di Maria, this is more than just ensuring that black and brown students um, have access to curriculum literature, for instance, that reflects their lived experience, but also that all students right. are right. challenged and exposed to the actual full history of our nation and our state and the full breadth of human experience. Well, and also also notions of social justice, because to be honest with you, one of my reactions to the George Floyd incident, you know, after shedding tears for Mr. Floyd was thinking about those police officers. And at some point they went to schools. They were in an elementary school. They were in a middle school. They were in a high school. And, so, and how did the education system, you know, fail to nurture in them uh, an understanding uh, that what they what was happening uh, with them was was wrong? Uh, and, and then I think about the 1.7 million school children in the state of Ohio of, of every you know, race and color and uh, ethnic background and so forth and so on. And our obligation to ensure that people understand uh, the history of oppression, the realities that exist in terms of systemic racism and how we have to play a part to, uh, jointly to dismantle it, because if we're not all each committed, um, then you know, that's, that's our only hope towards making a difference. Laura Kohler, uh, returning to you as president of the of the board, um, you lead a, a, a group of 17, and um, not all of them agreed with this resolution. Um, those that dissented, where are where are they on all of this now? Um, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, one of the things that that we uh, committed to doing was implicit bias training for board members. Uh, and we have are working with the Kerwin Institute at uh, the Ohio State University. Um, and for the last, and Paulo can correct me on this, but I believe it's the last maybe six months, no, maybe not quite that many, four or five months, we have um, dedicated 
part of um, our meeting time to professional development that is really designed to help us understand some of the vocabulary and really begin to um, look at our own implicit bias. Um, One of the things I learned from Merle Johnson is that everybody is at a different place in their learning with with this road. Um, Merle is light years ahead of me. I will call myself a novice. Um, But the implicit bias training has been helping those of us who are interested in understanding more and understanding how how this impacts the work that we're doing on behalf of Ohio's children. Um, And it's been really helpful. We have some board members who determined immediately after the vote on the resolution that they were not going to participate. I would say that um, some of them are still not participating, but I have noticed, and of course we're meeting on Zoom as well, but I have noticed that rather than signing off, folks seem to be at least staying tuned in, and I have hope that they are at least willing to listen to um, to the information that we're being given here. So um, based on public comments that we have had and members' reactions to folks who come to speak to us about this issue, I suspect that none of those five have changed their minds about the resolution, but I'm hoping that um, it's an incremental learning process for them. Thank you, Laura Kohler. Dr. Willis, the, the, the resolution specifically states that the State Board of Education directs the Ohio Department of Education to continue the practice of ensuring all state-administered tests are free of racial bias. Um, you and your colleagues administer those tests every year. Are they free of racial bias? Not yet. We're, we're getting there. And I would say cultural bias, whether it's, um, and I know it's not intentional. Let me give a concrete example. Again, 17 years of teaching. And I was a math teacher, and, and, and I prided myself in knowing that my students were prepared for what was then called the proficiency test. And I glanced at a test question, and the test question was asking about the slope of a black diamond and asking students to choose like a which ski number. Slope kind of black diamond ski well, slope? Well, who that's knew? All, that's that all time, it said was the slope that, of a black diamond. The slope diamond. of the black diamond. And, you know, as a good teacher, I teach my students to dissect the question, draw pictures, and I, I just saw my students drawing diamonds, like a diamond on a card, and they're like, but that's red. Or diamonds on a ring, but that's clear. My students had no idea what a black diamond was. Now, they could tell you about slope, they could calculate slope, but that lived experience of a ski slope is something that they just never had. So there we are, students that are going to be told that they don't know how to figure slope, thus have an an, uh, unscorable or non-passing math score has nothing to do with math. It was about their opportunity in life or their experiences in life. So that's the type of bias. Now, is it Is it intentional? Probably not. The test makers were making questions based on their experiences. So that's the part about unbiased testing that we've got to address. And I don't know if at the state level it can delve deep 
enough because our tests are pretty much outsourced, if you will, from other organizations. But we've got to have a voice in that. We've got to have people at the table. We've got to be in the room when it's made because people's experiences are, or their lack of experiences are often causing them to be judged and held accountable and sanctioned for things that they have no control of. Dr. Renee Willis is superintendent of the Richmond Heights Local Schools. Also with us, Paolo DiMaria, superintendent of public instruction for the state of Ohio, and Laura Kohler, who serves as president of the State Board of Education. We're turning now to your questions. If you'd like to get a question to any of any or all of our panelists, please text them to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club, and our team will work them into the program. You are with the City Club Friday Forum. Um, Here's a, not a surprising question. This was on my mind uh, all day this morning, all, all day today, and, and for the last few days. But yesterday, HB 305 passed for fair funding of public education, Paolo Di Maria. Will this, will, it, will this resolution help the initiative if Matt Dolan and Senate President Obhoff, quote, allow Senate Bill 376 to pass? So, I, I mean, I think the resolution obviously can go hand in hand with um, changes to the school funding formula and improvements in the school funding formula. Because, you know, I think one of the things that people are, are watching and asking about funding reform is, you know, how are those dollars going to be used? And, 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 and I think we all know, and we've seen examples in other states, which I think Ohio needs to try to avoid, that are, if you simply put resources into a system and, and the system doesn't actually you know, change by virtue of those resources and, and you continue to sort of deliver the same product, then you're actually not going to see any change. So I think, I think the, the resolution you know, sort of creates uh, a context in which we also need to talk about, okay, as those additional resources might be made available, how do those actually result in changed practices, changed behaviors, changed supports, uh, changed approaches to meeting the needs of, you know, low-income minority and other students, um, as, as well as, you know, uh, re-engineering some of the ways we educate everyone around uh, these realities. Uh, what is going to be different and how is that result going to be different so that we actually see stronger gap closing, um, see those students who are perfectly capable of reaching uh, the level of competence and proficiency of their peers, you know, get to those levels and set them on the trajectory for success, you know, post high school. I should clarify, too, that this uh, the, the question that was posed um, in implies a certain amount of power that both Senate President Larry Obhoff and Senator Matt Dolan have. Senator Matt Dolan is uh, chair of the Finance Committee, which is the sort of, I think, first stop for that bill. And Senate President Larry Obhoff obviously um, controls the agenda and what makes it to the floor for a vote. Um, Laura Kohler, I, I imagine, as Senate, uh, as president of the of the State Board of Education, you've been somewhat involved in these conversations about fair funding for schools. Um, certainly, you know, with other board members and, um, yeah, it's something that I actually have been following, uh, since the original DeRolf decision. 25 um, years ago. A, yeah. I was on a local board at that point in time. So it's something that, that's incredibly important to me. And I think that the way that it relates to the work that we're doing is that there is a recognition that it may take additional resources, not necessarily only financial resources, but resources in terms of maybe additional time or um, um, additional community support and social service agencies getting involved to help 
begin to level the playing field for some of these students who have been struggling for so long. Obviously, if if you come to school with an empty belly, you are not going to be able to perform or learn. And um, there there are districts that have uh, extremely high poverty needs that, without a doubt, are going to need some additional support in order to help close the gaps for those kids. We will be discussing this actually at a forum on Monday uh, at noon, um, and you can participate in that forum by uh, checking in at cityclub.org. It won't be live on the radio, but it will be live on the web, accessible to as many as possible. Um, another question for um, for all of you, I guess, and uh, you can decide who get, who gets to take it. It's fairly long. It's from Cynthia Connolly, who is executive board member of the Lake Erie Native American Council. She writes, the state of Ohio has the largest number and second highest concentration of Native American sports mascots in K-12 schools. There's scientific research that found zero positive outcomes for Native youth with these mascots. Rather, they found lowered self-esteem, lowered community worth, and increased negative feelings of stress and depression. If Ohio is serious about combating racism and advancing equity for indigenous students in schools, Native mascots need to be removed. States like Maine have already banned their use, while indigenous students are mentioned in the Ohio State Board of Education's resolution against racism and advancing equity. There is no mention of any efforts to reduce or remove native mascots. This seems like a missed opportunity to address a leading problem facing indigenous students in Ohio. Can you describe what the board plans to do to address the chronic problem of native sports mascots in Ohio? Again, this is from Cynthia Connolly, executive board member of the Lake Erie Native American Council. Paolo Di Maria, do you want to start uh, start it off? Sure. I mean, you know, again, there are so many. Ohio's a, a strong local control state, and I know you know putting that on the table isn't meant to be an excuse. But what's what's encouraging to me is that we're seeing more and more districts. Uh, having those conversations and, in fact, rejecting those mascots. I was just reading an article, I think it was about uh, Force Hills, uh, that had done that uh, in, the, in the southern part of the state. And, and, I, and I think as there's increased awareness, those kinds of uh, conversations are going to continue and have an impact. Dr. Willis is a, uh, I don't know what the, the mascot of the Richmond Heights local schools is, um, but uh, as a superintendent, these are these are the kinds of issues that, that you have to deal with sometimes. Yes. I mean, what, can you describe how, first of all, what is the mascot of the Richmond Heights so local schools? So we are the Spartans. Okay. <laughs> we are the Spartans, but um, one of my colleagues in our first ring um, collaborative, uh, the Parma schools, they, they they had to address that and they did. They did it, as, as Paulo has mentioned, on a local level. And um, there are other districts around here, they've addressed it on a local level. And it's taken, it, and it was, a, again, it was hard because you've got the history, the legacy, because there were people that would come out pro keeping the, the mascot. But then at the end of the day, the board, the local board made the decision to remove, you know, the various mascots that were being, um, that were offensive to a lot of our indigenous students. So it is a local um, decision, or it has been. I'm not sure if that's something the state board of education would even take on. Um, well, there's a, it's a, it's certainly the sort of thing that could be uh, encouraged by the board or, you yeah. know, if not directed by the board, right. I suppose. Laura Kohler? Yeah, and I think actually um, we do, the caller is correct. It's not specifically called out. But in the call to action for local school districts, we do ask them 
to reflect and let me get the uh, right wording here, uh, reflect and perform an internal examination of all aspects of their operations in partnership with their communities. And I would think that that, um, that discussion would fall uh, neatly in that kind of work that we're asking school districts to do. I should say, too, that I have no doubt that if you were in such a district that is continuing to use a Native American mascot or Native American imagery as a mascot, that I'm certain that the Lake Erie Native American Council would be willing to consult with you to help um, to help move beyond that. And uh, if you need help getting in touch, just reach out to City Club and we'll put you in touch. Um, Another question, uh, how will this resolution, Paolo Di Maria, how will this resolution from the state affect and change private school curricula and operations, especially if those independent schools receive indirect state taxpayer support in the form of vouchers? So again, uh, you know, the, the structures that exist in the policy context in which uh, private schools um, uh, operate uh, within the state structures prescribed by law. I, you know, I think this is one of those things, though, that, that transcends the legalities. P- part of what is happening in, in this resolution is really emphasizing the moral imperative, right? And, and, the, and the notion that if, if all of us have these uh, ideas in our minds, in our hearts, and in our spoken language and in our interactions, uh, that that's that's the road to change. Uh, and and while some may advocate for you know more aggressive and legally binding action, I think uh, this is an important starting point. So uh, frankly, I I hear many. Um, individuals who work in the private school sector having similar kinds of conversations, wrestling with similar kinds of issues, um, you know, engaging with teachers and students and communities uh, around these issues. And I'm really uh, encouraged by that. And we look forward as we create, you know, resources to support district activities uh, that, that, that are this kind of exploration and examination, uh, we, you know, will make those accessible to any and every educating organization in the state. Again, if you have a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Dr. Willis, there have been successful models of both public and independent schools who have been able to establish thriving academic environments and districts with similar demographics through holistic education, recruiting educators from HBCUs, and other resources. Are there active measures currently in place to either replicate or consult with schools and districts who have been successful in closing the achievement gaps so that we can do more than just talk about this year after year, asks one of our listeners. Absolutely. Great question. So the answer is yes. There are, there are instances that are being replicated, and I'll give a few, but I want to start at the, at the starting line again. A lot of the schools that were described in the question, I would ask, are they, are, they, are they schools that not only have the demographic look, but do they also have the same transiency rate? Do they have the same amount of special needs students? Are they receiving the same um, state share in funding or whatever their funding source may be? So equity begins with that. But I will speak specifically about some instances that are being replicated, and one that I'm active with at the state level is through BASA, our Buckeye Association of Supervisors and Administrators. We are currently in a subcommittee looking at creating that pipeline or connection or relationship with our HBCUs. And it's so timely because those that had never heard of an HBCU have heard of it now 
because our incoming vice president is a graduate of an HBCU, which is a historically black college or university, which I am proud to say that I am one as well from Spelman College. But those relationships have to be done just like corporate America does. When Pepsi seeks to get the cream of the crop for their company or some other Fortune 5 company, they go to HBCUs and they recruit from those institutions the best and the brightest. So it's gonna take a collective effort as a state to do that. So that is one example. There are others in terms of um, sharing culturally responsive uh, programming. And the state actually introduced my district to this whole Dr. Elise Futura um, concept around dealing with inclusive, inclusivity. And we, as a, as a district, we're reading a book about white supremacy and it came directly from our relationship with Dr. Futura through the resources extended to us from the state. So the answer is yes, but let us not get to the yes without starting at the equity line, because I would love to revisit the funding formula question, because while I am an advocate of it, I am also in near dire straits regarding what Ed Choice is doing to our districts that are categorized as Ed Choice because they fall into the lowest 20%, if you will, of the state schools. And if you examine what school districts those are, those are your school districts that are predominantly students of color. And so that right there has created an inequity that we fall in that category, thus more funds will be taken away from us, thus still held to the same accountability standards. Solid. plug to get that in. No, no, that's, I mean, <laughs> and that is, I believe that's addressed in this Fair Funding Act that is that we'll be discussing on Monday. Um, in a way that the voucher specifically, the voucher payments will come directly from the state and and districts will be more or less held harmless. Is that, am I, under, maybe, maybe. The, for those of you on the radio, she, Dr. Willis just sort of made a, I don't know, face. So we'll be discussing that on Monday. I hope you can join us. That's at noon um, I, uh, at cityclub.org. Paolo Di Maria, since curricula, another question from our audience, since the curriculum decisions are made at the local level, as a state board, you don't make those decisions. What impact does the resolution actually have? The resolution does instruct the Department of Education to make resources available, though, right? Yes. Uh, yes, it does. And, and, I, and I think it also um, uh, directs us to re-examine and make sure, because we do we do develop something called model curriculum, which again is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not necessarily a, a curriculum that a teacher could actually pick up and use per se, but it attempts to provide additional resources and, and, and expands on some of the key concepts of the standards. And so I think the way I've interpreted that direction is to say, as we are doing that work, um, we need to be much more attentive to the realities that speak to uh, anti-racism, anti-discrimination, and pr and promoting equity, and what does that look like? So a lot of it comes, uh, you know, is, is squarely felt in our history and social studies standards, because many people will look at those and say, well, you know, are we really doing justice to the history of oppression in Ohio and in the in the country? Uh, but it can also cascade into you know literature and science and uh, mathematics and other areas, and and it's our obligation to you know, sort of reinvigorate and recommit ourselves in that in that curriculum resource design work to say, hey, we, you know, we need to be attentive so that as schools are looking for um, resources that they can use, uh, that at least the department's sources um, are sensitive and, and cognizant of the of that of, of, of a more diverse uh, approach. 
Paolo Di Maria, sticking with you for a second, uh, our listener writes, thank you for walking through this very important resolution. Please address why behavioral health and trauma-informed care is not addressed in the resolution. Racialized trauma has one of the greatest impacts on students of color. Racialized trauma merits a DSM-5 diagnosis. Uh, that's the I don't even, I'm not even going to remember what DSM, what the DSM mm-hmm. refers to, but you're nodding, so you'll be able to explain it. That's the same level as sexual violence. Please go beyond, and also please go beyond test scores. There are many high-achieving students of color that, um, that learn from education inequities that are not captured in test scores. Right. You're, uh, so the questioner covers a lot of ground in that yes. question. Um, I'll start with trauma-informed practices. I mean, the board has had a commitment to trauma-informed practices, as has the department. We've, we, I think we just hosted our first statewide trauma-informed practices conference just recently. I think it was back in, in early November. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't have the resolution in front of me, but certainly the, the, the spirit of that intentionality is, is embedded in there because we recognize uh, deeply those realities. And, and again, I'll, I'll uh, tip my hat to Merle Johnson because there is no stronger advocate for uh, trauma-informed practices uh, than Merle. So, uh, so we see that and, and we understand, we just released our whole child framework. And I think we're at, we're at the leading edge among uh, the 50 states in terms of recognizing that there are many non-academic factors that influence a child's readiness to participate in the educational experience. And one of those speaks to this notion of, of safety and the trauma that a child may be experiencing outside the school building and frankly, sometimes even inside the school building. So as we, as we implement the provisions of the whole child framework, you'll see more and more resources being made available and more and more, you know, networking and sharing of best practices and um, and promoting uh, good practices around those kinds of things, including uh, on the trauma informed side, because, you know, as, as one looks at the disparities that we talked about earlier in terms of student performance, you, you have to keep, you know, thinking about, look, we've seen these gaps for years and years and years. What are we missing? And I think the revelation that trauma is one of those that stands as a real barrier for these students who are perfectly capable, as I said. They have the ability of mastering this content, but the trauma stands as a barrier. Uh, and, and, and I think we recognize that and are committed to, uh, uh, to um, nurturing a greater awareness and greater practices that speak to addressing that trauma. One of the things that we might be missing as well is early childhood education. Laura Kohler, um, this would... Uh, Universal early childhood education is something we've seen implemented in other states. Oklahoma has it. Um, uh, Oklahoma doesn't have a particularly uh, a reputation necessarily as being a leading progressive state in the way that, say, a California would or something like that. Um, is that something that could grow out of this resolution? That, is that the kind of reform that, that perhaps you'd like to see? Uh, well, I personally absolutely would love to see that. Yes, I'm a huge proponent of that. In fact, I just uh, read an article uh, today about work that's going on in Canton, and one of the statistics that they brought forward was that a child living in poverty has heard, I believe it was 30 million fewer words by the time they're four than a child who is more economically advantaged. So, I mean, it, it, it's if you need any more powerful evidence than that, I'm not sure I can help you. We we just have got to be doing this work um, at an earlier age. Indeed. Um, uh, there's a lot of questions here. Uh, the, the history of racism is often cited as a cause of the achievement gap. 
The listener writes to me, I agree wholeheartedly. Do we think the action plan will actually help? When I see charter school successes and the failure of affirmative action, I wonder how confident are we that the steps we're, we're taking will actually improve the situation? Laura Kohler, I'll start with you. Um, I think that's a really legitimate question. And one of, one of the... Um, one of the things that I've been wrestling with, and actually Paulo can probably answer this better than I can, is what measures can we use to actually ensure that the specific um, therefores or resolves in this resolution um, are actually having an impact? And I think that's probably a longer discussion in that some of for some of these things, we obviously, you know, we do have data that we can use. But um, again, I, I struggle with that uh, um, myself. Here's what I know is that the interventions that we have used in the past have helped make some progress, but it's not nearly enough. Uh, people are working very hard. We have wonderful teachers, wonderful administrators, people who care very, very much about closing this gap, but we're still not closing it. And so when we were talking about this resolution, it became apparent to us that we have got to look at this from a completely different perspective. And so we're that's what the resolution is, is doing. It's just embracing this idea of we have a problem. We have not fixed it. What do we need to understand in order to actually have an impact on this? People are tired of paying lip service to it and seeing nothing change. So we think that by really digging in, understanding some of this um the the historical impacts on where we are today, um, helping people who are in a position to either guide students or make policy or make law, people have to be aware of what might be in their own background and experience that is preventing them from seeing what actually needs to be done to make things better. And so... You know, um, I I believe that this isn't the whole story. Um, we could probably spend a whole other hour talking about the the community partnerships that are going to be necessary to really move the needle on this. But um, I think it's a, it's a start. It's a fresh start and an important start. How will the the three of you and Laura Kohler, your colleagues on the board, determine whether this racial equity resolution has led to meaningful change in the end? In in other words, our listener writes, uh, how will you determine if it's successful? Yeah, well, I think that we have, um, we were careful to put enough specifics in the actual resolution so that we can actually go back and check and see did we accomplish this? Did we not? Ultimately, I think we're going to see success in terms of closing the gap, the achievement gap, but also um, in terms of the the number of um, 
black students who graduate from high school. We need to move the needle on graduation rates. The number of students who not only graduate, but who are prepared for work or further education. And those are measures that we uh, are, are now um, able to track. Um, so, you know, I think that that the proof will be in what happens to each child as they move through the system. Dr. Willis, what other success metrics are you looking for? So let me first be clear, Dan, as um, I, I'm an end user of the resolution, so I, I was not at the table. Um, but what I would say is that as I have highlighted those specific items that Laura just spoke about, as a district and then in my bigger collaboratives that I am a part of with our district, we can specifically look at culturally responsive curriculum. We can look at black male initiatives. We can look at specifically uh, professional development around implicit biases. Are we actually doing those things? And if we aren't as districts, what's stopping us? Is it funding? Because this resolution does say that the State Board of Education will be committed to helping fund or helping share so that's what we can do at a local level and at a broader level through our collaboratives and even in a broader level through our state organization. So as an end user of the resolution, I've highlighted the exact specific items that I know as a district that I'm leading, I'm going to make sure we address. Paolo Di Maria? Yeah, so I mean, I think we have to remember uh, that this may also require us to develop some new measures. Um, you know, a lot of times people are very critical of state report cards and assessments, and yet the the, the genesis of those two concepts is really uh, a part of the civil rights agenda as reflected in federal law, um, and 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 uncovering and shining light on achievement gaps. Now, I think we can all acknowledge that. Um, the challenge to us in the education community is do those tools do a good job and if not it's easy to be against things what what can we put on the table as a, as a better way to gauge the extent to which students are in fact achieving are in fact reaching those levels of uh, acquisition of knowledge and skills that we want them to achieve and that will play into their success in the future. So I, so I think we'll see some interesting work both in Ohio and across the country in terms of thinking through some of those ways to gauge uh, the success of students. And yet at the same time, I think the, the, the structures of accountability and assessment have missed the mark by not actually then coming back and saying, what does good practice look like? I think we've, we've uh, federal you know, uh, policy has set up these in, you know, so-called incentives with the expectation that, well, if somebody's not doing well, they'll step up and do different. But I think not always everybody is clear on what does different look like in successful practice to close achievement gaps. And I think we have to commit ourselves to um, fi finding, we, we know the things that can, that can help, we just have to better identify them, help more people understand them, and then, and, then, uh, and, and then support implementation. Some of it too is about implicit bias, which is an area that is, I think, just getting some new exploration around how to both help people understand the nature of implicit bias that they might be bringing into a classroom or into a student's life, 
And then specifically, what can you do to overcome those biases? Because I think that increasingly people understand that that plays a role in the differential outcomes. I think you've just made a case to include an equity grade on the next round of report cards, Paolo Di Maria. <laughs> Paolo Di Maria is the superintendent for public instruction for the state of Ohio. Dr. Renee Willis is superintendent of schools for Richmond Heights Local Schools. And Laura Kohler, president and member at large with the Ohio State Board of Education. I want to thank the three of you for joining us today and thank you all for your work. Thank Great you. to be with you. Thank Great you. to Thanks have Thanks for you. having us. Great to have you. And special thanks again to City Club and Ohio State Board of Education member Merle Johnson, who helped us bring this forum together. Thanks also to members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more about them, and you can join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Um, we did mention, too, that uh, we are on Monday going to be discussing Senate bill, the Senate bill that is uh, called the Fair School Funding Plan. Again, that won't be on the radio, but you can stream it live at cityclub.org at noon on Monday. And next Friday, for the final Friday Forum of 2020, we will welcome Enrique Peñalosa, the former mayor of the city of Bogota in Colombia, for a conversation on how to advance equity through transportation planning and urban design. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands, keep your distance, and we will get through with this. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.